we bow before you as servants, Lord, with humble hearts to honor your presence in our midst, Lord, because it is only through the written word that we experience your presence, Lord. It is the goal of preaching and teaching and hearing and listening and digesting the written word is to be brought into a deeper intimacy with your presence, Lord. So we give you uh, this time and we ask that you administer to each and every heart uh, through your Holy Spirit, that you would impress upon us what it means to be your people, people of the risen King. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Everybody awake, moved around a little bit, had enough coffee? Yeah? All right. Good. This is going to be a long one. I'm kidding. Maybe. We'll see. Um, This is going to be a very political sermon. So, um, you know, if you need to make a bathroom break and the tires peel out of the parking lot, now is the time. It's going to be a very political sermon. Because it's Christ the King Sunday. And Christ is a king, not a president of the U.S. or a king of any nation, but he's the king of heaven and earth. And he has a domain, and it's called the kingdom of God. And so that is what we're going to talk about today. The politics of the kingdom. We're going to talk about Christ the King. And we're going to talk about, and this is the title of the sermon, Exercising the King's Authority. Okay? We, of course we want to talk about Christ and exalt him as king, but we want to talk about what does that mean for us practically as his people. It's, it's an awesome thing. So let me just say a couple things about how Christ became king. It's going to be like a real quick overview. So God made a promise to King David in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Everybody say forever. It will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Jesus, okay, so we had the monarchy of Israel and then it splits. It was nothing but chaos and murder and mayhem and conspiracy and all kinds of ungodliness and idolatry. That was hundreds of years summarized. Uh, you can go read about it in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. And then we go for a period of time where uh, nothing really is happening. Israel has been dominated by her enemies for hundreds of years. She doesn't have an established kingdom that is flourishing. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes along. This man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he was born of the line of David. Okay? And he is the long-awaited Messiah King. And he begins to walk the shores of Galilee and ancient Palestine and minister to people. But he comes, his way of becoming a king is rather... Um, unconventional. It's rather unconventional. His ascension to his throne is not like the kings of the earth. He lived as a servant. He lived his life as a servant. He showed himself to be at battle with another kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. It was not Rome. It was not Persia or any other worldly power. Jesus was engaged in a battle in a different kind of of dominion. One of the marks of Jesus' ministry that you will immediately notice, especially when you jump into Mark's gospel, is casting out demons. And there's a reason why that's such an important staple part of his ministry. The first scene in Mark's gospel of Jesus' public ministry, he's in a synagogue speaking, and all of a sudden a man with a demon starts to, I don't know, convulse or something and yell, and Jesus casts the demon out, and the demon says to Jesus, What have you to do with us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? And so what we're seeing when we see Jesus casting out demons is that the kingdom of God has 
infiltrated the earth and Satan is being dethroned from his place of authority. So as Jesus walks in uh, the earth and he casts out demons, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he cleanses the leopard, all of these are signs of Satan's dethronement. That's good news, right? So when a sick person is healed, it's a sign of what God wants to do for the person spiritually. When a leper is cleansed, it's a symbol of the cleansing of sin that Jesus will bring about on the cross. So every time that Jesus does an act of power, he's showing that the enemy is being defeated. So while he allowed earthly rulers to trample on him, put him on a cross, he was, what he was doing, unbeknownst to the powers and authorities, both those on earth and in the heavenly realms who opposed him, he was achieving an eternal victory enthroned above as Lord of heaven and earth. Somebody say hallelujah. Because it's been finished. It's done. He's seated there right now as we learn in Ephesians. So we're going to talk about what all of this means for us today in this urgent hour of crisis where the church needs to walk in the king's authority and power so that the world will know the king. So if you would look at Ephesians chapter 1, I thought I'd give you a a break from Jesus' parables of eschatology and final judgment and move into Ephesians chapter 1, not because those things are bad, they're very important, but because it's also important for us to remember who we are in Christ the king. Amen? So Ephesians chapter 1, what I'm going to do is actually read something from the end of the passage first, which is not the norm, but I'm going to kind of work backwards. But first let me say this. So the movement, just keep this in mind, the movement was this. The eternal Son of God lived in all of eternity in the heavenly realms with God. He descended in humility, took on the flesh of a man. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He ministered salvation to the peoples of the world, united those who would follow him with himself, and then paid for their sins on the cross, was raised from the dead in power, and ascended back to where he came from as a man. Okay? We don't think about this. There's a man, a, a human being, who's enthroned above heaven and earth now. There's some interesting theological questions that raises, doesn't it? But it's true. It's what the scriptures teach us. Jesus is enthroned on heaven, so it was a movement of a descension down to earth and an an affecting of our salvation and an ascension back into heaven where he reigns. And so effectively he's brought us with him, those who put their trust in him, with him back up into the heavenlies, essentially. We'll say more about that in just a minute. So we are, the Bible makes very clear to us, the representatives of the king on earth. Remember last week we talked a little bit about how, I think it was last week, how Adam and Eve were meant to be God's representatives He created them in his image and sent them, blessed them, and told them to have dominion over the earth. They were to be his representatives to the world. They messed all that up, as we know. But we are called to be God's representatives, Christ the King's representatives on this earth. It's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Jesus wouldn't have taught us to pray something that's not possible. the, The kingdom of heaven is being established on the earth already. It hasn't come to its fullness yet. It will when the king returns. But it's being established in advance, primarily through his church. Us, here in these pews this morning. So, we are called to walk in the king's authority on this earth. He's given it to us. He said, I've, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. 
Remember, he gave his disciples authorities to trample on snakes and serpents over all the power of the enemy. Jesus told uh, his 12, he said, I tell you, the one who believes in me will do the same works that I do. I tell you, they'll do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Right? So he left us with his authority and his power, his royal authority and his power to do the work of the kingdom. So let's talk about what it means for us. Let's look at uh, verse 20, starting in verse 20, about halfway through verse 20 in Ephesians. It says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then he says, far above all rule and authority. Say all. Okay, so he's above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus holds a higher office than not just the president of the United States or the king of Iran or whatever they have over there or whatever earthly king. He not only is is enthroned above them, he's enthroned above every principality and power that is spiritual authority in the heavenly realms because there is hierarchy of spiritual beings who have authority, both evil and good. And Jesus is over how much of it? All. Amen. I love it. You're awake this morning. Hallelujah. So Jesus is over all of it. God has set him there and placed all things under his feet and made him head over everything for the church. So now, we've established that he's seated in heaven. His throne is established forever in the heavenly realms. Now let's back up in the passage and talk about what it means practically for us. So starting in verse 17... In Ephesians, Paul is praying one of these powerful prayers for the people of God. And this is what he tells them in the letter. I keep asking. Okay? I keep this prayer going. I don't just say, dear Lord, let it be done. Amen. I keep asking for this. He's persistent. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Everybody say, revelation. Paul knew that God had to open people's eyes. It had to be a work of his spirit for them to see the intimacy that they have with him. So he said, I'm interceding so that you'll see that your eyes will be open to the reality. And then he says specifically the words, that you may know him better. That you may know him better. Better. So this is about intimacy first and foremost, right? That our eyes would be open to the intimate access that we have with God the Father. Amazing that God cares and longs for that in us. But you see, friends, if we don't have the Holy Spirit giving us revelation, we'll have a hard time knowing and understanding the power and the authority that we have to walk in. We need the Holy Spirit to give us revelation. One of the practices that I do uh, personally with this is I pray, you know, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. He's God. And I say, Holy Spirit, give me better revelation today of who Jesus is and of who I am in him so that I will walk in the power and authority that you've mandated that I would walk in. Praying to the Holy Spirit, speaking to the Holy Spirit, asking for revelation. Paul did it for us. Of course, we should ask the Holy Spirit, give us deeper revelations. Too many Christians are worried about this. They're worried that to seek revelation from the Holy Spirit is going to end up um, overcoming the authority of the Bible or something. No, the Holy Spirit's never going to give you revelation that contradicts the Bible. 
right? I always say the Holy Spirit's not telling you to uh, divorce your spouse and go marry the person you're having an affair with, okay? That's not revelation from the Holy Spirit. He's never going to do that. His, what his revelation is is always going to line up with what he spoke through his word. But too many Christians are worried about that, but we actually should pursue prophecy, the gifts of revelation, but we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to those things. You, you have not because you ask not, right, James says. We need to seek the Lord and ask him for words of revelation, uh, better understanding of his word, of supernatural revelation, because God wants to give it to us. He has many things to say to us, but we don't hear very many, largely because of inattentiveness or, or unbelief. We don't believe God wants to speak to us. So we have to believe that God wants to communicate with us. We're his beloved children. Okay. Now, in verse 19, we're going to skip a verse. He says, His incomparably great power for us who believe. Everybody say, power. Power. His incomparably great power for us who believe. The power, that power, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Here's what Paul is saying. There is a power, a spiritual, supernatural power that is for us. What power is it? It's the same supernatural power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, dwelling in us. Whoa. Whoa. We don't, we don't believe it, right? We talked this morning in our class about renewing the mind and breaking down mental strongholds of lies so that we believe the truth and we bring our thinking into alignment with what God's word says. This is one of those areas where we really have to be active about doing that because you have authority. And the enemy will do everything he can to convince you that you don't so that you don't walk in it because people's lives will be changed. People will be blessed. People will see Jesus and come to Jesus. So we have to believe by renewing our minds in the word Ephesians 1 is a great place to start, that we have a power working for us and through us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the very power of God. I mean, that is an amazing, amazing thing. So to wield the king's power, we have to realize that we have access to it. Okay? So, I want to talk about power and authority for just a second and, and, and what, it, what it is. In Luke chapter 9... Uh, we read that Jesus uh, commissioned his 12 disciples, and this is what he said to them. Let me just read it to you. This happens on more than one occasion with different groups of people, but Jesus uh, says to them, where is, oh, here we go. <clears throat> when Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. You see, these two things, casting out demons, getting people free of demonic oppression, which is more widespread than we think, and getting people free of sicknesses through the healing, uh, through the power of Jesus, are two things that were absolutely fundamental to the extension of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. Beloved, the only reason we don't see more of it is because we don't believe and we don't pursue it. So may we be a people... May we be a people at Good Shepherd who believe that that is still a part of advancing God's kingdom. Do you believe that's still a part of advancing God's kingdom? Setting captives free? Seeing people healed, right? These were so fundamental to the spread of the kingdom. Because when people see the power of God on display, they are going to be much 
more open to the message, to the word, that Jesus is Lord, he's real, he came to die for their sins. It's in that power encounter. So, power and authority are given to all disciples, and then, you know, well, that was the 12 disciples. Well, in Luke chapter 10, it says he sends out 70 others and gives them the same power and authority. And they come back and they say, oh my gosh, the demons, we're casting out demons in your name. It's amazing, right? So, Jesus himself said this he said if i cast out demons by the finger of god then the kingdom of heaven has come among you so we see this is the king thing and the way that his kingship is established through the overthrowing of the enemy who afflicts people who wants to steal kill and destroy so jesus gives all of his disciples that same power now power let's just talk about these two terms very briefly power is the ability and strength to complete a task very simple definition. Ability and strength to complete a task. Authority is the right to use power. Right? So think of a policeman. He has the badge, which symbolizes his authority. To, if he needs to, use his gun, which is the power. Right? So we have authority because of who we are in Christ. We have power because Christ himself is in us by his Holy Spirit. Yeah? Amen? Am I right? I know. God is right because he says it. Okay. So verse 20 tells us that it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that is dwelling in us. Christian, you lack nothing. It's not a matter of uh, figuring out how to get this power. I don't want you to leave today thinking, how can I get this power? It's, you have it. It's a matter of accessing it activating it, believing that you have it, which is going to come through seeking God's face, of course, seeking God's face in prayer, but putting it into practice. There, and, and there are endless ways to put the power into practice. And the more we practice the power, the more we'll be rewarded with more opportunities and more power because God sees this is a person, this is a woman who uses my power right this is a man who uses my power and stewards it. I'm going to give them more opportunities to do so. You see, our country is, is so desperately in need right now. Our country is so broken. I have never seen anything in my 30-something years of life like this. Our country is in need. We need unity. We need peace. We need order. We need reconciliation. It seems when you turn on the news, it's the opposite of all that right now. It is, our country is desperately in need. And none of that is going to, uh, it's no, none of that is going to happen at a deep level until the church of Jesus Christ experiences another great awakening. I really believe that with all my heart. There's been really two great awakenings in this country in the last several hundred years where uh, the revival the work of the Holy Spirit came in such power and was so widespread where bars were clearing out because the gospel was being preached and people were falling on their knees and repenting of their sins. There, there, we need a, a great awakening in the country. And it's something that we can't bring about. God has to do it. But we can position ourselves and seek God's face for it. And there's really two things to do for us. One is to pray. Pray for revival. God's looking for a church, a church, capital C, that's hungry for revival. 
he is. It's just so clear from Scripture. He wants to revive his people. He's looking for people who are hungry to be, re- be revived by his Holy Spirit. And the second thing is that we have to show ourselves desperate for his presence. We, we, we can't, like, just be indifferent about whether or not we have God's presence. He wants us to be hungry. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I will, if you seek me diligently, you will find me, right? God wants to see hunger in us. So it's up to his church, though, right? It's up to those of us who belong to the king, who know him, who have his power and authority, to be the people who cry out. You know, I, I think the, 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 the life of the church right now, the, the, the saving grace in the church right now, are little small pockets of people who are getting together and crying out for revival because God sees them. It says so in his word. It says that he took note of those who gathered and spoke about him and wrote them in his book of life. So when people get together and talk about God and talk about the things of the Spirit and cry out and show them desperate, whether it's a group of three people or a group of a hundred, it doesn't matter. God sees that. And it's so important. I think it's the saving grace of the church right now will be small groups of people who get together and pray. We don't need to fill up our pews before we can do that. We can do it now. It wouldn't matter how many of us there is. But there has to be a hunger for it. We cannot be content with the status quo. Because like I say on a weekly basis, it's going to become more difficult to be a Christian in this world. It is. It's going to become more difficult. And we need to be a people who are rooted and grounded in the Spirit of God and who hunger for His presence. Because none of this nonsense going on in the world and in our country right now is going to change until there is a great move of the Holy Spirit and a spread of the gospel that changes people's hearts. Just, just do yourself a favor and just read a brief history of revival in the United States of America and look what changed. Cultures, cities, communities. It was power encounters with the Spirit of God because there were people and those were always preceded by a small group of people who got together, cried out, prayed, fasted for God to come and move and shake his people and waken them, awaken them to go out and do the work. But we need God to do it. We need to God. Sometimes the prayer that we have to start with is, God, I want to be hungry for that. I don't really feel hungry for that. I'm too distracted by the things of this life, but I want to be hungry for that. So would you teach me to be hungry for that? Teach me to pray towards that, Lord. He will. We have to pursue that. This is like why Paul was saying, I keep praying that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see who you are, to see the power that you have access to. You're children of the king. You have authority, royal authority, to exercise over all the powers of evil in the world, whether it's sickness or poverty or death. The, the, the food bank, that handing out food to hungry people back there, that's exercising the king's power and authority over poverty and over hunger, right? We're doing something about it. May we apply that power and authority to other areas of our life. There's a lot of sick people in the world who need brave Christians who will lay hands on them and <clears throat> pray for them. Uh, John Wimber, one of my favorite authors, said, Many Christians do not adequately recognize that though Christ's victory is irreversible, its application to everyday events is ongoing. Right? So he won the victory at the cross, and now we have to apply it in the ongoing everyday events of our lives and ministering to people, and building one another up as the church, encouraging one another, worshiping together. We have to do it. So in World War II, 
a great analogy to this. In World War II, the victory for the Allies, it was assured on uh, D-Day, right, June 6, 1944, Nazi-occupied Europe, the shores of Normandy. The battle was essentially won when, that, when those shores were invaded, and the victory was inevitable at that point. The power of Nazi Germany had been uh, broken. Any, any war history buffs in here that could probably tell this better than I can? Yeah, a couple. So... It was, it, was, it was inevitable. Victory was inevitable. But there was 11 more months of the bloodiest battles of World War II that had to happen before the victory was realized, before it was actualized, brought into completion. So this is, this is what it's like for Christians. The victory, the battle was ultimately won. Victory is inevitable. Okay? Victory is inevitable. Say this, we win. We have to remember that. We win. No matter how hard life is getting you down, no matter how hopeless things seem in this country, we win because we know the victor, we are in the victor, and the victor lives in us. But we have to stay actively engaged in the battle until the day that he returns or until the day we die. We have to stay actively engaged in the battle. The Christian life, it's not a passive position. It's not a passive faith. We have to stay in the battle. This is the last thing that I want to say just as a reminder of encouragement. John chapter 15. How do we stay engaged in the battle? This is fundamental uh, to everything. This is fundamental to everything. Jesus said, remain in me as I also remain in you. This is the king of heaven talking to us. Remain in me as I remain in you. No No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. There has to be connection and communion with the source of life, the source of authority and power, the king of heaven. There has to be communion with him. And he says, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You know what struck me about this passage as I read it this week? I've read it a million times because I love John 15. He says, remain in me. We focus on that usually. As I remain in you. Jesus is intentionally, with heartfelt love and passion, always moving towards us, remaining in us, looking for a dwelling place. Always, he's intentional. He says, remain in me as I remain in you. So I already remain in you. He's, he, it's not on his end. Our, our, commu- our intimacy with him is not something on his end that he needs to do. He's already remaining with us and is not withholding it from us at all. It's that we have to be active about remaining in him. Well, what will inspire you to do that? Knowing that he remains in you. Knowing that his love for you is a pursuing love. He's always seeking deeper intimacy with us. And that is key to personal revival, to knowing and being reminded that we have the power and authority of the king. If you don't know how to, how to do that, set apart a few minutes just to be in his presence. Just use your imagination. This is what I do. I'm just speaking. I can only give you my limited experience. You may have a great way of, of engaging and having intimacy with the Lord and keep, keep it up. Hallelujah. But sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, okay, I got a prayer list. I got some scriptures I got to look at. I got to do this. And then I'm reminded, I just need to sit in his presence because it's all about him. It's all about the king. And he's welcoming me into his presence. He wants me to abide in him, just to be there. And so sometimes I just put on some kind of soft instrumental music or something that helps my mind settle down a little bit. And I just will sit there with him 
And if I, my mind wanders, I just bring it back. Remember that quote I read at the beginning of the sermon by A.W. Tozer, when the eyes of the soul uh, look upon God, the eyes of God looking on heaven have come to earth. That's adoring Jesus, being in his presence. That is where that personal revival will start in our lives, that we have a hunger to bring him. Because you can't leave his presence and not be excited about it and not be renewed, refreshed, and reminded of the, the things that he has for you to do. So keep, keep getting in his presence and saying, Holy Spirit, give me revelation. Give me revelation of who I am so that I can change this world by the power of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are a king. And you reign above chaos of earthly political systems and situations. You're the prince of peace and your kingdom is a peaceable kingdom. And it's there, Lord, where we truly are citizens. This is only a temporary dwelling place for us, but you are king. You have called us, commissioned us as your ambassadors to this nation, to our community to walk in power and authority. Lord, give us a hunger. For, for those of us who don't really feel that hunger, Lord, make us want to hunger to hunger so that we would put ourselves before you, Lord, seeking your face and knowing, learning what it means to have power and authority, the same that raised you from the dead, that it's accessible to us. God, may we be a place where the sick are healed, where the lepers are cleansed, where captives are set free, where demons are expelled, where your power and authority isn't something that we're afraid of or skeptical of, but we embrace because it's a part of the way your kingdom gets advanced. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that you continue to do a mighty work in our midst, in our small groups, in our Sunday worship, in our time serving the community together at the food bank, that you build us up, Lord, that you grow us as a church, that you'd strengthen us, not only in number, but in power to do the works that you've called us to do. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We spend the rest of this day, Lord, just worshiping you, just adoring you, turning our eyes to you, and being refreshed by your presence. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.